Hi, I'm Nick, and this is Bike Talk, streaming from the Pacifica Network station, kpfk.org in Los Angeles, California, and Pacifica Network affiliate, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts. Today we have an interview with three bike Twitter viral tweet authors and a Los Angeles Times writer on a ballot measure that would force the city to implement its own mobility plan. The plan's called Healthy Streets LA and would require safe biking and walking infrastructure to be installed whenever the city repaves or otherwise works on a street. Just a note, this episode has local conversations about biking in Los Angeles and will continue to provide coverage of L.A., but we're syndicating with the addition of Valley Free Radio in Florence in the greater Northampton area of Massachusetts. So we're working on a story about a group called Safe Streets Northampton and what they're doing in the aftermath of the car killing of a local teacher to bring a bike ped perspective and urgency to the Department of Public Works street projects and promote bike ped causes with city councilors and other city boards. Hopefully we'll have that next week. Now we have Safe Streets and Housing Advocate Lindsay Sturman's interview with Los Angeles Council Member Nithya Raman and her field deputy Mehmet Berker. According to Streets for All, Nithya is doing more than any other council office in L.A. right now for bike projects with seven new bikeways in the works for her district. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Lindsay Sturman, the co-host, and we are so excited to have Mithya Raman and Mehmet Berker here today to talk about bikes and all the amazing things you're doing. So we'd love to hear a rundown of all these new projects. So first, thank you for having us. We're so excited to be back here because I did Bike Talk a couple of times over the past few years. So I'm excited to be back here and back talking to you again. I wanted to just step back and talk a little bit about what we've been able to do, particularly what we've been able to do with Mehmet in the office, because Mehmet is very passionate about biking, as am I, and passionate about creating safe alternatives to getting around in a car. Right. And I think what we talked about when he came on board was really to think about what can the city do and what can our district do in terms of low hanging fruit for some of these projects. And I think when Mehmet came on, we were still in the middle of our big budget crisis. So we were at a moment when we hadn't gotten confirmation that the Recovery Act money was coming to localities. When I first started in this role, we were looking at what was a billion dollar budget shortfall in the city. And so when you're looking at something like that, when the DOT Department of Transportation is so understaffed, how do you push forward an agenda, I think is something that we were thinking about. And so for us, one of the things, and I can have Matt talk a little bit more about this, was really to say, how can we take up opportunities and existing and planned infrastructure investments that are already on the books, that are already happening, and try and think of them as ways to insert bicycling safety improvements. And so one thing that we did, and I think that was reflected in the article that came out recently, is looking at resurfacing, existing resurfacing projects, and thinking of them as opportunities for adding bicycling infrastructure. So I don't know, Mehmet, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the resurfacing opportunities that we saw, we found a couple of opportunities that I think, one, where the community was not only excited and already engaged on it, And others where when we told people about the project or our ideas for the project, they said, okay, great. Or don't do it. (laughs) And I think that's fine too, you know? (laughs) That's what we want to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I think there is more collaboration and coordination that can happen. I think folks know the kind of balkanized system that we kind of unfortunately do have in the city. There are a lot of different agencies with a lot of different pieces of the public right of way, and they're all professionals and excellent at their job, but it does mean there are a lot of cooks in any kitchen. But the city has been making strides and improving that even under that kind of framework. So there was just a interagency MOU that was signed in January that basically is kind of memorializing what the agencies have been starting to do for a little bit now, which is checking in with each other, working together. There's going to be kind of a shared database. So it's really going to put into high gear a lot of that coordination that a lot of staff were doing, but didn't necessarily have as supportive of a framework. So I'm excited about that because as the council member says, coming in to office and then me coming into my position here, we did kind of just have to go out and we proactively looked at some opportunities, just knowing that they might be there. And that's been great. We did get two out of it this fiscal year, the Riverside Drive project, which we're very excited about, and the Burbank Boulevard bike gap closure. 
So that's been great. And the hope is that we don't even necessarily need to do that in the future, that the departments will be able to kind of come to us about some of these But we will continue to do it. And we have actually looked at the forecast of lands resurfacing projects to scope out these opportunities in the future. But I do want to talk to you, Lindsay, a little bit about the outreach that we did for these, because I think that was also really exciting. So one thing, and I told Mehmet at some point, are we doing too much? (laughs) (laughs) But I also do think that bike lanes in Los Angeles have been, even if they're not protected, Bike lanes have been so contentious here in the city of LA that I think it is good to go the extra mile on it. But for both of these efforts, Mehmet, in partnership with field deputies for those areas, presented to the transportation committees at all relevant neighborhood councils. We met with key stakeholder groups that operated in and around that area. So we talked to, in the case of the Riverside bike lane, what were the additional groups that we spoke with Mehmet there? I mean, we talked to everybody. We talked to the neighborhood councils, of course. We talked to the LFIA. The Los Feliz Improvement Association, which is kind of the homeowners Mm -hmm. association that has the biggest presence in the Los Feliz neighborhood. And they were really supportive. And I believe all of these people ended up submitting letters of support on the project. At least the neighborhood councils passed resolutions in support. It was strong support. I think one of the things is it was a very easy, conceivable project for folks. And maybe one could expect a little pushback for removing a car only lane. But the thing about it is that we did our work beforehand and we talked to DOT. And as much as I hate to say it, as someone who has on the outside had these fights, there are levels where you're saying, okay, actually taking out a second lane could be a really huge lift. But to our point, when we ask DOT and they say, no, these are low, A, it makes it pretty easy. One other thing we did is that we came in and we didn't make it a choice about like, oh, are we going to do it or not? I don't know. We said, DOT are the experts in the field. They told us this is going to be okay, good to go. We kind of presented options for what kind do we want, protected lane or a non-protected lane. That was kind of the option that we provided. The other thing which was really exciting was that we actually did door knocking and hung flyers at the apartment buildings that would have been impacted on the Burbank Strip. The flyers had the opportunity for people to write in or call into the office if they had concerns. Nobody did. We received no negative feedback about that at all. And then similarly, along the Riverside Strip, we spoke with the apartments that border that area, provided adequate notice, and we didn't get any pushback. I think part of the challenge in terms of trying to do community outreach around these issues in Los Angeles is that you end up having the same players that come into these conversations with very strong opinions one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And the honest truth of it is that for most issues, most people don't know and don't have any opinion, Mm. right? (laughs) But if they were given a choice between having a piece of bicycle infrastructure in their neighborhood or not, they would probably say yes, but they're not going to go to a community meeting to say yes. And so Mm -hmm. I think our additional efforts gave people who would be the most likely users of that infrastructure and who are the closest to it an opportunity to say yes. And I think we did get more of that positive feedback than we would have otherwise had we not done that additional outreach. So I'm very happy that we did. And I'm really happy that these efforts are going forward. This is amazing. And I want to just compliment you guys on all the work you're doing with the interagency cooperation. It feels like that's the future for a lot of the things that we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's been really cool about the district is that it overlaps a lot with a transit advocate at the state level, Laura Friedman. Mm -hmm. who has really thought a lot about biking and bike infrastructure and who is thinking about climate change and transportation and also has put in a bunch of investments to the LA River. Mm, And so one thing we're excited about is continuing to partner with her. And so obviously there's the interdepartmental coordination at the city level, but there's also this multi-jurisdictional coordination. And honestly, that has to happen in order to get the dollars. Right. We interviewed some people from Caltrans. It sounds like there's a real shift happening at the state level and a real commitment to active transportation. Yeah. I think the city is also moving forward on their commitment to active transportation and we're working with them on it. So we have an active transportation implementation plan at the city level, but we don't have enough staff members who are really dedicated to putting that plan into action. Right. 
And I think lack of adequate staffing has prevented us from being able to fully realize the potential of active transportation in the city. And we're actually working with the Department of Transportation to say, how can we make sure that in the next budget cycle, we are advocating for more staffing for you? And actually, we're not the only ones. There's multiple council members in the city. Mehmet, remind me again, who actually put forward that motion around staffing levels that yielded the analysis? I think it was Councilmember Rodriguez, right? Um, I think so. I'd have to double check, but I think one thing about it is that it was council coming and saying, listen, we have an executive directive, the Green New Deal. How do we actually implement this? And I'm very proud of council for asking that question because it's turned into a direct result in the department reporting back and then the department making a budget request that's going to be enough to accomplish that. So, oh, no, sorry. So, I just looked it up. Mike Bonin and Paul Krikorian were the primary movers, and it was seconded by the council president. And just to that point, one of the things in that report that really stands out is as of the report in October, we only have five full time dedicated staff for on street active transportation. So, we have 7,500 miles of streets. And New York has about 8,000 miles and they have about 34 dedicated staff. So you can already see that LA suffers a lot. And then I think one thing that they made clear in that piece was that they also don't have dedicated geometric design. So that's the person that actually is using CAD to draw the striping or place the bollards in the drawing. They don't have a dedicated person. They have an engineer, but they don't have the person who draws everything in the end. They have to go in line for everything else at the department. So we just want to be supportive of that from a cynical take, because that helps us unlock When we come to them and we say, "Eh, it's not necessarily in the work plan yet, but we want to do this. One thing about this is there's so many dedicated, awesome staff at every agency that deals with the public right of way. They're there. You can be a cynic about government, but they're really there. And it's really great to try and unlock that through structural means. So basically what you found was that there wasn't the staffing to get the projects through the system because there are five people Whereas, as you said, New York had 34. And now as you change that, the staffing will be there to push through these bike lanes that people support. Hopefully change that, right? This is going to be part of a budget request, and it's about supporting that. So I'm sure you've heard about the Healthy Streets LA ballot measure that tons of volunteers, I'm actually one of the volunteers, full disclosure, are getting signatures to put on the ballot to implement the mobility plan, which is obviously tons and tons of bike lanes and lots of great stuff. Any hope that the city council would just vote to adopt the ordinance and implement it proactively, and then all of our energy can be spent doing other good things? (laughs) Um, Maybe. I do think, though, that there are so many issues around which there is widespread popular support for change at the city level. And when you get to the neighborhood level is when you start to see some of that opposition. And things like bridge home facilities or housing for people experiencing homelessness, Things like bike lanes, all of these things do have a lot of support. And it's very clear when you have ballot measures or when you have questions around housing and building more housing overall, there is widespread support for these issues. And yet there is significant slowness when it comes to council districts actually building these measures in their own districts. And I think it's because of the way in which the feedback circle happens. I think at the local level, at the neighborhood level, And we respond to this all the time in our office. Even for small changes, you end up having to respond to significant amounts of community outreach and community feedback. And it's often the people who don't want infrastructure who tend to speak up the most. And we do not hear from the people who do want the infrastructure or in other ways actually rely on that infrastructure or desperately need that infrastructure because they don't have the time in their workday or they don't have the ability, language ability or whatever it is to participate in these conversations that are happening around that infrastructure. And so in some ways, I feel like pushing the city to act and taking discretion for some of these things that we know are good for the city, that we know are necessary for us to be able to reach our climate goals, that we know are good for us in order to protect us on the streets, 
some of that discretion does have to be taken away from the people who face the most repercussions for putting that infrastructure in place. So I guess my answer to you is I think we need both. I think we need the city council to step up and do more and to believe in it and to fight for it and to push for it. But I also think that we do need more of a push externally and less choices for the city not to do the thing that I believe, at least that most people want for the city. I just love it. (laughs) Well, maybe we can talk about the intersection of mobility and housing because that obviously inflames people. And you find that actually inflames the same people. What I found just talking to neighbors and people across the city is that anxiety about housing is actually tied to anxiety about taking away traffic lanes. A lot of it just comes back to traffic. I think we're in a state of despair about traffic. And of course, bike lanes are the solution, bike lanes in transit. So tell us if you see a future where housing and mobility and 15-minute cities can exist in LA. I think that there is definitely growing support for change on these issues. Not thinking of myself with my city council hat right now, but really thinking of myself as someone who wants to see change in Los Angeles over the long term. I do think that we have to find better ways of activating, I've often called it the community of yes. And how we activate that community of yes, I really think is going to determine how the city looks going forward. Because there is a lot of anxiety around traffic. There's a lot of anxiety around housing. And yet there's a growing acknowledgement, even amongst people who have fought some of this development in the past, that the question is no longer, should we have more housing in LA or not? But where do we put more housing in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? And the RENA allocation and the new housing element that's coming into place right now, the new community plan updates, I think all of these are designed to make sure that we're asking the latter question and not the former, right? And so I think just reframing that question is reshaping how we have discussions around where this infrastructure can go and how it needs to be built. And I do think the more that we can engage the public on these issues and really engage people who haven't been engaged before, and particularly young people. So I have a personal goal, which is to try and bring more young environmental activists to think about housing because the two are so connected. Right. (laughs) Um, And it's also their own futures. Like, will I be able to afford a home in LA? And I think if we don't start bringing them into the conversation, I do feel like we are losing a big part of what could be, what should be rightfully at the center of this debate, which is the people who will inherit this city. So that wasn't a very good answer, I guess, to your question, which is, will we have a 15 minute city? (laughs) I think that the answer is unsatisfactory, which is, yeah, if we work really hard. (laughs) You're right. I think the answer is young people. In a sense, everyone talks about LA as a city of neighborhoods and they're right. And one of the things we know is that when people talk about transportation and they just talk about commutes, I just start tuning out because I know that that person hasn't actually looked into research, which talks about how many of our trips are not commute based, right? Anytime you talk about what someone's actually doing with their day, yeah, they might commute to work, but they're also going to the grocery store. They're doing a million things. They're going to school. There's so many trips that are already happening within that one to two to three mile zone. And we just default to accepting them as by car. And Mm. it doesn't have to be something that's four mile, huge bikeway project. Those are great. And long projects like Avalon and West Adams are truly awesome, right? But they're serving the neighborhood too, and probably primarily. So, I mean, I just think part of it is there's latent demand, right? There's folks that are moving about right now and they're either on a bike having a less than great experience, they're walking, having a less than great experience or taking transit or having a less than great experience or they're driving and having a less than great experience. <laughs> is there just Most people. With everybody else. Yeah. I mean, so to the council member's point, there's so much we can do to improve that and to make it as forward thinking as possible. It's just exciting to think about sometimes. (laughs) You're filling me with hope. I love a community of yes. Exactly. (laughs) That is our clarion call. We have twins who just started at the kindergarten down the street from us, Ivanhoe Elementary. And in the mornings, it is really beautiful to see in Los Angeles, how many people walk their kids to school, just the number of kids who are walking. And I've seen that at schools across the entire district. It's really, really beautiful to see. And I think the more we have even just a vision of that being possible in LA, I think the better that we can do in terms of getting to the city that we want. Thank you both for coming on Bike Talk. It was so great to talk to you. 
Likewise, this was so fun. <laughs> Up next, three people I found on Twitter. Each had a tweet about bikes that went viral. So we have three people, John Ricky, Esso Echo, and M. Friedenberg. And we don't really know much about each other. We're just here to check this out. And I just thought I would start by first talking about the concept of a viral tweet and what to each of you. Is this normal that your tweet got this many likes that I'm focusing on today? John, Esso, M. Yeah, that was a bigger tweet than usual. Some of them break out for whatever reason. You use the right combination of words at the right time, and it strikes something in people's imagination, and they go, yeah, heck yeah. And we can speculate about why that is, but for yours, you tweeted. Do you have your tweet in front of you? Uh, not in front of me, but I remember what it was. Energy is a tax on your time and energy to go to all these meetings. Right. So now I think that there's a critical tipping point where people are collectively realizing that people who not just want bike lanes, but any safety improvements in streets have to go to all these community meetings block by block and get everybody's approval where you don't have to do that for a freeway. And I feel like we're all kind of talking about this now. But you said that and you also said the part about attacks, which was kind of a new twist on it. Right. If you're asking some people to participate in something and you're not asking other people to participate in it, that's a tax on those person's time and energy specifically. And it always seems to be the people trying to get stuff changed for the better, at least in our opinion, of course, right? We're trying to make the streets safer and we're trying to make the air cleaner. We're trying to give people options for getting around, but we're being asked to do more in order to get that done when it should be the default. Um, so yeah, I consider that a tax on our time and energy in order to get that done that car drivers aren't asked to provide. I'll just jump in really quickly and add as well that that really ensures that those investments also then only go to the neighborhoods and the communities where people have that excess time and energy. Um, there are a lot of spaces where people are working more where people don't have childcare and they just can't show up to late night community board meetings that go on for hours and hours. So when it isn't the default, you're going to see an equitable implementation. And I should say, Em, are you with Transalt, Transportation Alternatives? I am with Transportation Alternatives, a research associate. And your tweet, do you have it in front of you? Just so we can put them all out there. Yeah, I can read it out. So it's a video of a street that I live very close to. It's basically a huge arterial street. It used to be more lanes, but now it's two lanes for moving cars, two for parking, and a bike lane that is buffered and constantly parked in. And so after a snowy day, there were cars double parked on both sides of the streets. And so there's just one little lane in the middle where cars are going through. And I took a video of the one moving lane. In my latest tactical urban intervention, I set up dummy cars to demonstrate that Bedford Avenue functions just fine with a single lane for private vehicles. Right tongue and cheek. As much as I wish I could put in dummy cars everywhere. Was anybody besides me fooled into thinking that you had actually done this? There were a couple people. I clarified a couple of times, but yeah, I probably could have layered on the sarcasm a little bit more. Because people have done tactical urbanist things like this, right? Like they've taken out parking meter spots with bikes to occupy a whole block. So I thought you had just parked these cars here, double parked and brilliantly shown that it was no impediment to the remaining lane of traffic. I think even more brilliant is the New York drivers who double parked their vehicles there and showed that they did not need that lane of traffic themselves, despite their objections. I'm sure when we try to put in a bus lane or try to build a better protected bike lane. So I might as well go to Esso now. Esso, do you have your tweet? I do. I should preface by saying I'm not an expert on most of the topics we're discussing today. I'm just a person that had a question and wanted to throw that out to my community. And my community happens to be San Francisco. So question for all SF bicyclists, are you okay with skateboarders sharing the bike lanes for commuting? And I thought this was great because it kind of put you in the position of being the dominant mode of travel in a way as a cyclist, because it's a bike lane and then there's a skateboarder in it. And so how do you share? Sure. And I used to bicycle. Unfortunately, I was hit by a car and woke up in a hospital paralyzed with a two-year recovery. So that was in my past. And as I moved back to the city, I wanted to have a mode of transportation that was quicker than walking, 
but the same token, I wasn't comfortable yet to be on a bike. And I do surf, I do trail run, and those activities have certain protocols when you're doing either of them. And I didn't want to be, quote, that guy, unquote, in a bicycle lane if I was unwelcome. And thus thought I would ask the question. So you weren't trying to be clever or anything or make people like think hard about their role as a cyclist and now having to accommodate other equally vulnerable road users? Frankly, I just wanted to be polite. And safety obviously was an issue for me as well, too. And I wanted to make sure that if that lane is there, I wanted to use it appropriately. So what were your responses? What'd you get? It's overwhelmingly positive. I think the general consensus is, is that if you're not using a car, that's what these spaces are here for. Obviously, again, I keep on coming back to safety. I think that we're all trying to figure out how to use a very tiny space in a very, very big way. So hopefully these tinier spaces become bigger for us and become smaller for cars. And I think we're all on the same team. And it was really encouraging to just see the discussion. Definitely put a smile on my face. In particular, any responses that you remember? Uh, let's see here. Well, of course, one always remembers the negative one. And I think there might have been two. So it was somebody that just basically said, no, definitely don't want it. See, that's where I think that's kind of hypocritical. If you're talking about sharing road space, and then you don't want to share with a skateboarder. Sure. And like I said, the responses were probably 95% positive, like, let's share the space. People were saying yes, 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 over and over and over again. So for me, at least, as somebody, like I said, that wanted to be polite in a shared space, it was encouraging. And I should also say that I don't have a lot of followers on Twitter. So the very fact that my tweet got recognized was <laughs> amazing. Uh, definitely was surprised by it. And then did you do what a lot of people you see do? Like they give a shout out to like a cause that they want to support or like a friend who needs money. Did any of you do that when you saw that you had all these responses or went viral? And I think you need to get up into like the hundreds of thousands before you start throwing those out there. I would agree with that. <laughs> so you weren't in the bike lane on your skateboard before, or you had a couple times, so? No, I haven't yet. I was actually looking at being back on a bicycle uh, for the last couple of months. And I was definitely diving down that rabbit hole. Do I build a bike? Do I buy a bike? And as I started thinking about it more, I started looking at skateboards again. I started looking at surf skates and cruisers. And I was just like, I think that might be a better avenue for me in the short term. I'm definitely going to join the bike tribe at some point in the future. But mm -hmm. for right now, for where I'm at, I feel most comfortable on a board. All right, cool. Well, welcome. Thanks. Yeah, we look forward to welcoming you back. Fantastic. John, so how about you? Responses that were memorable? Uh, not that I recall. I'm in Denver, and we've noticed this pattern of the local Department of Transportation just studying stuff over and over and over again for years and years. And they always start with a decent plan, and it gets watered down further and further and further until it's sometimes just plain old charros on the street. And the bicycling community here has gotten a little bit more organized in recent years and a little bit more annoyed after noticing this pattern happening over and over again. So on my side, it's kind of been a building acknowledgement of, of something that's gone wrong with the process. So the responses, I think they were all in favor. Nobody said, well, once you guys get driver's licenses and pay taxes and stuff like that, nothing ridiculous like that. Do you have a day job related to this, John? Not at all, no. M, responses? to your tweet that you remember? Yeah, this was mostly just bounced around, I think, within the New York City bike world. You can get in a little bit of a bubble. So they were largely sympathetic. But I think it was interesting the few people who did respond um, who misinterpreted the tweet and thought it was serious and were offended that I would inconvenience people with putting out these cars in a driving lane People are saying, you know, if someone has a disability, they can't access the curb. Those cars that are parked can't get out. You're slowing down people. Wow. Which, but they just played themselves, really. Exactly. All of those things are absolutely true. But it, it wasn't me. It wasn't any advocate around the city. It was the drivers who every single day double park. They were also double parked, I'll mention, in the bike lane, which is super dangerous. And cars drive really fast and recklessly on that road. So when you are forced to like go into the car lane, the cars tend to get really mad at you, but you kind of have to like show them that you can't possibly bike down the bike lane when it's just filled with cars with their little flashers on while they run into a store, just leave their car there for 10, 15, 20 minutes. So that's one of the big themes or motifs on bike Twitter is people parking in the bike lane just for a minute. Do you all spend time on Twitter looking at bike stuff? I so do now. It's entertaining, right? 
certainly interesting in San Francisco. No question. It's a good way to raise your blood pressure. (laughs) And we're all fighting the same fight. And one wonders if we're collectively getting any smarter or better at it by seeing the same thing repeat over and over again, these community meetings, the way people park in bike lanes, Fighting fighting over scraps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's interesting with Twitter. It does seem like a lot of this kind of content, these things that we write, that we put out there, it's largely therapeutic. It's either therapeutic or it rails us up, but it's largely within the community that's kind of already a part of it. And then every so often, you're just kind of hoping that something resonates with a larger audience and Mm -hmm. strikes a chord with people who haven't necessarily thought about these issues before and helps kind of open other people's eyes to these inequities that we see that seem really obvious once someone's pointed them out. But maybe if this is just what you're used to, you don't question how our streets are divided at the moment. I can definitely say I fall into that category as somebody that's new to the community. I'm also very positive about how we're going to move forward in the future post-pandemic that we do have all these new spaces that are opening up, slow spaces, new open spaces. I think there's a new awareness, particularly in large cities, to really have an opportunity to rethink how we're structuring our streets and how people should be interacting with them without a vehicle. So I think it's encouraging so far. One of the things we've noticed in Denver is that there's more people who are participating in the community now than used to. Five years ago, we wouldn't have been able to scrap together a meetup to just get together and have a drink and talk about this stuff. But now we do it pretty regularly. And I think that's the next step for advocacy is to get people off of Twitter and to meet up. And then once you meet people in person, you've got that connection. Whether or not you're planning anything, you have that social interaction. And yeah, once you meet in person, you have to take that next step to get off of Twitter. So it's no longer just entertainment or getting worked up about stuff. You have to get together and start talking. And then once you start talking to people, you can start doing. And I think that's the next step for a lot of places is to start doing. Yeah, I totally agree. agree. I think that's very well said. And we may not have added shout outs at the bottom of our respective tweets. But I think that this is an opportunity to say, you know, find your local organization. There are nonprofits out there who are doing this advocacy work. I'm extraordinarily lucky to be working at one in New York City. But these groups have been doing it for often decades and decades. They know the people they're trying to make change. So get involved, donate if you can, or donate time and every voice helps. Even just to get together yourself, regardless of the formality, we have nonprofits here working on streets issues but they're not able to do a lot of the things that we as non-professional nonprofits can do. We can actually do the tactical urbanism, whereas they have to be very careful about how hard they push, where they push and stuff like that. Right now, we need to work on the political engagement, honestly, with city councilors. They're the ones who are standing in the way of better streets. The DOT in my city, they've got people who can make good designs and want to do a good job, but the larger community isn't there yet, even though we've got a spark. We've got a little kindling going on but we need to get out there and start explaining to people why this is a good idea. I'll take this opportunity to mention an organization I've been working with in San Francisco, which is Walk SF. We're a pedestrian-focused organization and trying to create safer streets throughout the city. Most of us are on bicycles as well, too. So we definitely want to reach out to those organizations that are bike-focused and hold hands with them and create positive change in our city. Walking, biking, public transit public space, parks, these issues intersect in all of these different ways and they're not segmented. And so you're involved in one, you're kind of inevitably become involved in the other. So it's not a bike topic. It's also pedestrians, also accessibility. It's low income bus riders. It's making cities work. And if you can get together to people to talk about it and have a good time, they'll want to continue to get together and have a good time and then make it better. Wow. You just jammed. (laughs) That was cool. We're Um, starting our own organization. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these are three different cities that you're representing. So it's one thing to get off Twitter and get together in the real world. But then on the other hand, you really can bring all the cities together too using social media. To build up of what John was saying earlier, I think Twitter is just one thing. It's a tool in a toolkit. So yes, we can connect with other like minds, regardless of our own geographic area. A small idea can become a big idea, but being able to transfer that and funnel that into a real world situation is really the magic. And it's really on all of us to, yes, give our opinions out there into the Twitterverse, but to really not just leave it there but to grow it into something that really connects us all in a meaningful way in real life. 
Well, anything else? What are you all tweeting about these days? I mean, I hate to be so Twitter specific. I was giving too much credit to Twitter, probably. Twitter's a good way to get opinions out there. I use it mostly for learning. A lot of other people that I follow are very smart. And I can use that to sharpen my own arguments and to learn different ways of doing things. It's the only reason I put up with the high blood pressures. I was going to say, if I'm having a good, calm day where I'm feeling good about the state of our streets, I don't use Twitter. I don't look at it. I don't want to see that. And it's something I only turn to in moments of frustration and needing a way to channel my rage or any other negative emotions. So maybe not the healthiest space. My specific use for Twitter personally was to get back in touch with my home city. And also, I'm very much into living a simple lifestyle and connecting with those folks via the internet as well, too. So much like M, I definitely try to use it sparingly, but it is an effective tool for building community, I think, in the digital space. If you're being purposeful about it, yeah. I don't think people have done that yet. Or is it kind of coming back around? Was it originally for that? I don't know. <laughs> What are we tweeting about lately? It's winter biking here in Denver. So I've been tweeting about the bike lanes and making sure they're clear and don't have ice and get around in the winter as well as in the summer. And then, of course, there's people who say, I can't bicycle in the winter. You know, what are you going to do when your grandma needs to move a refrigerator in the middle of winter? It's impossible. Some of those conversations, some of those responses are okay to make, and some of them are obvious trolling. You got to decide. <laughs> what I find is with bike Twitter, my attitudes get so sharp. That I know when I hear something like, oh, but so-and-so can't bite. I know that everybody's going to pile on that person and it's safe for me to tell them to, I don't say mean things to people, but you know that the community will back you up. It's one of the unique natures of Twitter. Somebody put it on there. They said, you don't have to participate in every argument you're invited into. <laughs> the local advocates here, we also started a Facebook page. And just got it up and running. And I was on it for a while and paying attention to it. And then I stopped. But there are other people on there who are still paying attention to it and making sure that it's running okay. Every channel you can get out there, I guess, is a good way to do it as long as you're getting the message out effectively. I mean, Amy, you're the professional. What would you think? Well, it's a huge resource for work. We do so much. It's how we can mobilize support. It's how we reach out. It's how we often get like elected officials' attention. It's everything. Even just internally, like to understand what's going on. Like you have to be clued into the Twitter conversation, but I'm starting to work on our international Vision Zero Cities journal. It's a conference and journal that we publish every fall. And we were trying to look at around the world, what are people doing? What are conversations that are going on? Who can we hand a microphone to? Who can we bring in? I don't even know how to approach that without first looking at Twitter. Like I wouldn't know where to go. It's just ridiculous how many ideas, how many things have come across, even just like this. It's such a cool way to come together and to start hearing perspectives that maybe someone who's new to the world of bike advocacy. And I appreciate its ability to cross these geographical boundaries and the little bubbles that we've created. So are we saying that Twitter's not dead? <laughs> was anybody saying Twitter was dead? I'm not really sure. It's not Facebook dead yet. <laughs> sure. I get a lot of my news from Twitter. I hate to say it, but for some reason, it's a way of getting news for me. It kind of uh, sounds like we all have a little bit of healthy detachment from Twitter. Use it as a resource, but it doesn't necessarily control any part of our lives. So I do appreciate that. Can we get Twitter to sponsor us, you think? I mean, if we keep mentioning them? I believe they're right down the street from me. I'll give them a knock at the door. <laughs> So uh, I saw something on Reddit. Is Reddit anything that anybody would ever consider going on? I'm on there occasionally. There's a Denver subreddit that stuff comes up every once in a while, usually traffic related, but not nearly as involved as Twitter, not nearly as many communities or sub-communities. It's a higher cost of buy-in. It's really easy to buy in on Twitter. You can just follow and never say anything or you can interact or not, but it's more like a forum. It's almost more expectations, I think, at least mm -hmm. in my head. All right. Well, it sounds like we might be winding down and I may not have any other questions, but what if this is as popular as you ever get on Twitter? The amount of fine. stress I had the following day watching the count tick up. I think I would be very fine with never receiving any attention after this. It was very distracting. I did not get any work actually done the next day trying to make the city streets better and safer for cyclists. I'm not going to lie. I was very overwhelmed with the responses. I remember spending hours replying to folks. I had a question, how do people do this every single day? So if I don't get another tweet that's recognized as well as this one, I'll probably be okay. <laughs> it's fine. You can put it out there and then never think about it again. I mean, it's designed to make you want to come back and look at it, but you don't have to. Like I said, it's a low buy-in and it's a low buy-out. You can just walk away.
Well, hopefully you are stars of Twitter in the making, and we're getting you at the ground floor here. Thank you. Thank you for this platform. Well, keep up the good work, everybody. Good as well. Thank you. It's nice to meet everyone. Likewise. See you online. It's been great. Awesome. On Twitter, guys. Yeah. Nice meeting you all. Now we have the esteemed leader and founder of the Midnight Riders, where he was known as Roadblock, founder of the Wolfpack Hustle Ride and organizer of the Marathon Crash Race, longtime Bike Talk co-host Don Ward, in conversation with LA Times writer Carrie Cavanaugh, who wrote a commentary on the Healthy Streets LA ballot measure campaign, which would force the city of Los Angeles to implement its own mobility plan, which it currently ignores. Welcome to Bike Talk. The guest I have today is Carrie Kavanaugh, who's an assistant editorial writer with the LA Times, covering Los Angeles and Southern California with a focus on housing, transportation, and environmental issues. Prior to joining the LA Times board, she was a producer on KCRW's To The Point and Which Way LA. Before that, she spent a decade with the LA Daily News, where she covered LA and California politics and wrote a column on local government issues. Welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. So you wrote an opinion piece in last week's LA Times about the Healthy Streets LA ballot measure. Why don't we get your take on that and talk about this? Sure. I was on Twitter one day and I saw some commentary about this Healthy Streets LA ballot measure. So I emailed the organizer and I said, so wait a minute, you want to go the ballot measure to require the city to implement its own mobility plan? That's crazy. And he replied, yeah, that's absolutely what we're doing. And it is crazy. So I said, well, this feels like something I can have an opinion on and I shall write about it. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you think? I guess there's a couple issues here, whether it can actually make it to the ballot and whether the voters will vote for it. Basically, in Los Angeles, we have this recurring issue where the politicians will pass like the 2010 mobility plan 12 years ago. And I guess it was the bike plan. And then we have another one, the mobility plan, and another plan. And they never really seem to implement it, or they implement it only partially, and then it runs into some political opposition. What do you think the chances are for this to solve our problems here? The ballot initiative? Well, I mean, it's always hard to collect that many signatures in L.A., On the face of it, people in Los Angeles want safer streets. They want investments in quality transit. I mean, we've the city and the county voters have repeatedly passed tax measures. They voted to tax themselves for transit, for better quality streets. And so there's a desire among voters for transportation and mobility options. But it's this framing that is really toxic in LA politics, which is that everybody has to get everywhere as fast as they can in their car. And anything that jeopardizes that ability for a person driving a car to get where they want as quickly as possible is bad and therefore should be stopped. The city empowered their staff to spend an enormous amount of time creating this mobility plan. And the idea from the get-go was always to be ambitious and to really rethink how, given our population, given our traffic, given the way we want to grow as a city for climate, to get people out of cars, the idea was always to have this really ambitious plan. And the city council adopted it and the mayor supported it. And lots of people said it was great. But the second... The implementation happened and when projects move forward that actually require possibly taking away a car lane, all hell breaks loose and there's opposition from some members in the community and some council members just bend to that immediately. Plus, they just ideologically don't support the idea of taking away car lanes, even if it results in a better total transportation system. It's hard to know. There's like a lot of confusion in the conversation about traffic in LA. I've lived here all my life and there's always this tug of war between widening roads for more cars, which is pretty much impossible at this point. And the fact that 
when you widen roads, you actually encourage more people to use cars on that thoroughfare. And they're still emptying out into these places where there isn't a six lane street. So therefore you just get gridlock across the city and drivers really don't have any other option because our public transit is pretty unreliable and biking seems dangerous. Although there are a lot of people that would choose to ride a bike for a lot of trips if they were given the safe option to do so. So there's always this quagmire of interest at play here, right? Like the agencies come up with these plans and then the city council seems to have the power to deny those plans to be implemented. So this ballot measure makes sense. I'm curious if it does gain traction, who the opposition would be and what kind of power they would have have to get this defeated? Or what do you think of the chances that this will make it to the ballot and actually pass? If they can get the signatures to get on the ballot, I think it has a pretty good chance of passing because the electorate that's going to come out in November is going to be really broad. You know, LA used to have these sort of off-cycle elections and very few people turned out and they tended to be sort of older homeowners who had a very different viewpoint than folks who are younger, who tend to vote in these presidential and gubernatorial elections. And they have very different interests. Younger folks want the option to bike. They want to walk. They want to live often in a more urban environment where they can walk to get their coffee or walk their kids to school. It's just a different electorate. And I think if they get on the ballot and they can make the argument that you can drive a car and no one's going to take your car away, but you need to have options. If they frame it as options and safety, I think there's a real appetite for that in Los Angeles, that, that we can't keep living the way we did in the 80s and the 90s. There's a real desire for change. I think so, too. I think the political landscape changed a lot in the last 15, 20 years, that this could actually pass. Let's say it passes. Then how does it work moving forward? Tell us about the ballot initiative itself. What are the levers of power that it uses that would, I hate to use the word force, but I guess it would force the implementation of the mobility plan. Yeah, the plan includes these vast maps of the city. The city staff have plotted out areas where a bus-only lane makes sense. It would help provide connectivity and provide a more seamless bus transit system. There's places where they've envisioned having protected bike lanes. LA has a lot of bike lanes, but they're not protected, and a lot of people don't feel comfortable riding that close to vehicles. So the city's already plotted out all these opportunities. But right now, it's really easy for city council members and also city staff to say, well, we're not going to do that right now. We'll do it later. This would take that option off the table. For example, there's a protected bike lane on a particular street. If it becomes infeasible to build that, then they have to look at an alternative that's of equal value. So you're not going to get nothing. You're going to get something. It may not be what's on the map, but you're going to get something. And right now, we just get a lot of nothing. It takes a lot of the political choice off the table. I'll tell you, when I heard from some people in City Hall, they said, well, you know, that's great because right now the political choice is what stymies things. If you don't have the choice and you have to implement, then it's no longer a fight. It's about how do you implement this in the best way possible as opposed to will we do this or won't we do this? Yeah, and they seem to always have this big, long, drawn-out process for bike lanes and crosswalks, but when they widen a freeway or when they widen Magnolia, there's not a lot of conversation around it. So I guess if this does pass, then a lot of the public discussion would be taken off the table, just simply implement it. In talking to the Department of Transportation, which is one of the major agencies involved, I think their idea is that there would still be community outreach, there would still be working with the community just because something's on the map doesn't exactly tell you how it will be built. And there is a value in getting input from the people who live around a project, how to make it better. Ideally, you're not going to just completely eliminate public input. But again, it becomes input on how do we make this project great as opposed to should we or shouldn't we build it? You go in knowing you're going to build it, then it just changes the tone and the direction and the productivity of the public conversations. And the other thing that's in this, right now, it's kind of a mystery. Like these lines are on a map and nobody really knows what's the status or what's being built. There's really not a good tracking system. So this ballot initiative would also require the city to actually say what it's doing and how it's doing it and the progress toward actually accomplishing this mobility plan. And that lack of transparency right now is a real problem. People don't know what even the city is committed to and accomplishing with their own plans. Have you talked to anybody in the Department of Transportation about this specific ballot initiative and what they think about it? 
So I did, and they didn't tip their hands completely. I had a statement from Salita Reynolds, who's the head of the Department of Transportation. And the gist of what she was saying is that without taking a position, you need to make sure that she said unintentionally stripped communities, especially those who have historically been left out of the conversation from having a say in what investments best fit the needs of the neighborhood. So again, it's not a question of should we have these investments, yes or no. It's how do we make these investments fit in these communities? What does the community need and want? So I think their point was just, you still need to involve the people who live around these projects. And this ballot initiative, if it passes, shouldn't strip that input and oversight from the community. The thing that we've run into a lot with community input from any of the communities is that there's still a lot of confusion about how traffic actually works. Like I was just listening to Larry Mantle this morning talking about the reduction of speed limit. There's a new California state law that allows for departments of transportation to reduce speed limits after a number of years of the 85th percentile law being used to ratchet up speed limits, including in Los Angeles, where the LADOT raised the speed limits on like 100 miles of LA streets, even in the last couple of years. And now they're able to reverse that. And even in Larry Mantle's conversation with a transportation expert, they were still repeating a lot of false narrative about how traffic actually works. They're thinking like reducing speed limits is actually going to cause more congestion. And if this ballot does pass and we have people able to weigh in locally I'm curious if there are protections in there that would get us something of good quality that isn't going to be compromised by local opinion that, for better or worse, can be misinformed about how traffic affects their community and whether it's a benefit or not. So I'm just curious more about just some of the details of the initiative and how the process would work moving forward. I don't think the initiative is that specific, but your point about public input To a certain extent, with the city and the advocates who are trying to change decades of thinking about traffic and transportation in Los Angeles, and it's not overnight, there's a lot of communicating to people about why speed is so dangerous, what the value is to them. Sometimes there are trade-offs. It might take you five minutes longer to drive somewhere, but when you do decide to walk or bike, it's a much safer, more pleasant experience for you. I think there's a lot of communication and maybe salesmanship, but also bringing people along because I suspect that once some of these projects are embedded into communities, there'll be a lot more support and buy-in and it won't be such a hard lift. But there's a lot of changing of the mindset that's necessary in Los Angeles. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show and discussing this. Streets for All is the organization that is putting this solid initiative forward. They are gathering signatures as we speak and they're gathering volunteers for gathering signatures. Well, we'd love to have you back on as this moves towards the ballot box. And thank you for covering this topic. Carrie Kavanaugh with the LA Times. We thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. And that's all for this week. Check in with us next week for more coverage from LA, Massachusetts, and the Netherlands. If you have news or views you want to share, you'll find our contact information at biketalk.com. Thanks for tuning in. Catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.